And good morning, everybody. I'm Maria Sansone, and welcome to Mom to Mom, and welcome to the brand new Mom to Mom studio. Do you like our glow up? It is so exciting. And for those of you who have evolved through this show, it started in my attic during the pandemic, then we moved to the mom cave, and now I have this beautiful studio, and we have such a great show coming your way today with the one and only brilliant Rabbi Steve Leader. I have to tell you, I saw him on the Today Show recently. I stopped in my tracks and I had to just listen to every word he said. I was hanging on every single word. So he is the senior rabbi of Wilshire Boulevard Temple in LA. Newsweek has named him one of the most influential rabbis in America, not once, but twice, and while he appreciates all of those accolades, being known as Betsy's husband and Aaron and Hannah's dad bears a lot more weight to him, and that's very important to us here on mom to mom So I gotta tell you, today we're going to dive into his newest book. It's called For You When I'm Gone, 12 Essential Questions to Tell a Life Story. So you guys, we're going very deep today into why he wrote this, what he's learned, talking to people who have been going through the grieving process his whole life, and how this can really change our lives. So Rabbi Steve Leader, it is so, so great to have you here today. I feel like uh, we're honored. We're honored to be talking to you uh, because this is like, uh, this is great. The honor is mine, Maria, and I, I so appreciate the opportunity to talk with you today. So let's, really start, let's start from the beginning. For you, okay. when I'm gone, 12 essential questions to tell a life story. I know you've written many books, but why did you want to write this one right now? I wrote this book for two reasons. One, my previous book, the one immediately before this book, a book called The Beauty of What Remains, was a 55,000-word book, Maria, and I had about maybe a hundred words about this concept I referred to in that book as an ethical will. And of all those 55,000 words, almost every journalist, talk show host, et cetera, they wanted to talk about those hundred words about this concept of an ethical will, which very few people had ever heard of before. So maybe we can start with what is an ethical will. And that's really why I wrote this book. And the best way to understand what an ethical will is, is what it is not. Think about the final word that most of our loved ones have to carry with them after we die. The last thing they hear from us is almost always a last will and testament, a legalese boilerplate document written by someone who barely knew us. And it's all about who gets what and when and how much. The material things. Yes. The and things that you know through your work really don't matter in the end, right? They don't matter. I tell people that's like handing your loved ones a picture of food. Right. It's not going to nourish or sustain or comfort them. What do people, what do our loved ones really want from us? They, they want our blessings. They want our life lessons. They want our guidance. They want to know what we've learned through our mistakes and our triumphs. They, they want our love. That's what they want to carry with them. And so this ethical will is a, is a document that bequeaths to our loved ones what's going to matter most. But it actually also is a gift to ourselves because if we answer these 12 questions with real sincerity and humility, we're gonna have what I call an MRI of our inner life. We're Ooh. gonna have a document that we can hold up to the light and ask ourselves what I believe is the most important question any of us can ask ourselves Which at any age. Probably really powerful work to do while we're alive, of course. Um, 
to because what is this. that question? Yes, and like right. you talk about living our authentic lives and and making sure that that that's the life that we're living and we're leaving behind, where many of us right. aren't even sure what that is yet. So by doing some of this oh. work and this homework in your book, I feel like it kind of gives us a little roadmap. It's more than a roadmap. It's a picture of your inner being, and then you get to hold it up to the light and ask yourself, okay. This is what I say my truth is. Am I living it? Or is my life mostly kabuki, pretend? Kabuki. That's an important assessment. So that's the other reason I wrote the book. is not for our loved ones when we're gone, but as part of this great post-COVID reevaluation, and I do mean great, that is so important for, for all of us who have been through and are going through this opportunity to rethink what really matters in our lives. And of course, that's never a what, that's a who. Right, and I wanna get into all the questions, and we will, and I wanna talk about some of the work that you do. Um, sure. Of, so let's start there. Let's talk about a little bit of your history and your background. I know that you work with a lot of grieving families. Um, so this book has been a long time in the making. And yeah. So these 12 questions, you say, is like, took 15 minutes, but took 35 years at the same time. Exactly, exactly. My editor asked me, how did you come up, Steve, with these 12 questions in this specific order? They just unfold a person's life story. And I half-jokingly said to her, as you pointed out, uh, Maria, 35 years and 15 minutes. These are the questions that I have been asking for 35 years when I sit down with a family to talk about their loved one the day before the funeral so that I can prepare them and I can prepare myself to tell this person's story. You know, I used to teach uh, at the seminary a class called homiletics, which is just a fancy word for how to write a sermon, a wedding address, and a eulogy. And when I would get to the eulogy section of the syllabus, I would write on the board, an obituary are the facts. Mm. Eulogy is the truth. You know, the facts of our lives don't really tell anyone very much about us. The fact that I was born in Minneapolis in 1960 doesn't tell you much about me except my age. That's not a truth. That's a fact. Now, if I told you, Maria, when I was a little boy and the stress of my parents' marriage and that home in which I was raised was too much for me to take, I would get in my canoe and go out on the creek that ran behind my yard and find solace in the quietude and beauty of nature. And I still seek solace in nature. Now you know a truth about me, not a fact. And it is the truth of our lives that's so important. And these questions are meant to unfold the truth of our lives. I would think it's hard to find our truth, right? Let's say mm -hmm. we do the work and we get your book. And at this point in my life, I go through and I answer all of the questions. And let's say I am able to come to what the truth of Maria really, really is, my authentic self. How mm -hmm. do we align our lives to make sure that's what we're doing and not just what we're thinking, or as you say, kabuki? Because I love yes. that concept. Yes. Well, that that is the work of being a fully realized and actualized human being, isn't it? This This alignment. The unhappiest people I know are people whose lived values and professed values are not the same. They say one thing, they do another. And there's a wide delta between those two realities. That is a very difficult way to live. That duality causes tremendous dysfunction, that dissonance. Now, none of us are completely aligned with our true selves. 
But the closer we are to living the truth we believe in, the more fulfilled and content and meaningful and beautiful our lives are going to be. How do you do it? It's a battle every day. It's a battle every day, Maria. You know, we sometimes have this feeling that the line between good people and bad people is a line between us and them. And that isn't true. It's a line that runs right down the middle of every one of us. We're all wrestling all the time in a thousand little decisions every day, whether to be our best selves and live our truth or to, to surrender to, uh, to our lesser self and to the majoritarian culture around us. So I, I wish I could give you a an easier answer that there was some pill you could take to be in alignment with your truth, but there isn't it. This is what it means to be a spiritual person, to, to be engaged in that internal conversation. Yes. Every and just self-aware, right. And just constantly looking at ourselves. Cause you're saying that. And I'm thinking, do people realize there's a disconnect or do other people realize looking in? No, she says one thing. She does another like it's both do. Yeah. I don't know if I could be the one to answer that. Ultimately some point you have to. You have to, and, and look, can you fix it all? Can we be it all? No, but I often rely on this Buddhist saying that I love so much, which is tend the part of the garden you can reach. Ooh. Right? We can all reach within ourselves and be better aligned and live closer to our truth a little bit each day in some way, somehow, somewhere. And, you know, I've learned after 62 years, a little is a lot. A little change is a lot. That's true. So when is the right time to do this kind of introspection? Because I imagine a lot of stuff comes up, right? Um, yes. This can be difficult work to do, but we never know when our time is coming. So if this is work that we want to do to leave as our legacy for our family, it seems like probably yeah. now is the time. Yes. I was asked when the book launched in June, I was asked one of those kind of tricky talk show host questions that authors get asked sometimes, which was, if you had to summarize your book in two words, what would the two words be? And it came to me right away. Those two words are, don't wait. Don't wait. When is it too soon to ask yourself these probing questions about your inner life and then try to live closer in accordance with your your truest self. When is it too soon to do that? When is it too late to do that? Never, never. And I'll tell you, there's so much truth in what you just said about you really never know. And I'll give you two examples, one from f about six years ago and one from last night. The example from about six years ago is I had no idea that my last conversation with my dad was my last conversation with my dad. I had no idea that one visit to the nursing home, we could have a conversation. And by the next visit, <clears throat> he never really spoke again at all. That was about six years ago. My father had Alzheimer's for 10 years and died four years ago. The second example, is literally from last night and you probably can't sense it, but I'm moving a little awkwardly because last night I was um, hit by a young woman who ran a red light and my neck is killing me right now. And uh, I've got, I've got burns from the airbag here on my, oh my arm. Gosh. And had she hit me two or three feet 
closer to my driver's side door, I'm pretty sure I wouldn't be here talking to you right now. Wow. So you really, you really never know. So the answer to your question is now. Don't wait. How do I take a break on that note? <laughs> but we do have to take a commercial break. We're going to talk more about that. And we're going to talk about the 12 essential questions to tell your life story with Rabbi Steve Leader when we come back. I think maybe grab the tissues. <laughs> If you like mom to mom and you're a fan of The Hub today, you've got to sign up for our new newsletter. It's called The Hubbub, and it is delivered directly to your inbox every Wednesday morning. We've got great mom to mom content on there, recipes, and all kinds of cool stuff. So all you have to do to sign up is go to NBCBoston.com/newsletters and click on The Hubbub. Rabbi, in your work, you encourage people to uncover the good, the bad, the ugly, and really <laughs> like blow the lid off of it and share it with our loved ones. Why do we want to share with them the whole story? We want to share the whole story with them, of, of course, with, with appropriate, appropriate limits, depending upon the age of, of your children and your loved ones. Because I don't know about you, Maria, but I remember the day I realized my parents were just people, <laughs> human, human beings, fallible, doing the best they could, married at 17 and 18, five children before they were 30. The day I realized that, I had a deeper and more profound sense of love and respect for my parents. In a way, we're more whole when we're willing to reveal that we're broken and, and, and we, we are closer to the people we love by telling the truth about our lives. The first question of the 12 questions in the book is what do you regret? Because to answer that question, why is it first? Because to answer that question requires real vulnerability, real honesty, real integrity. And it puts you in the headspace to address all of the other questions that are to follow. And one of the things we learned by talking about our regrets, and one of the things I learned through this process of creating this book, is that what most people regret most is not something they did. It's something they didn't do. Oh, my goodness. Yes. It's, it's the words they didn't speak, the time they didn't show up, the path they didn't take, the, the fear they allowed to prevent them from really living. Those are the kinds of invaluable lessons that we leave to our loved ones. You know, success doesn't teach us or anyone else very much. It's failure. Failure and disruption, those are the great teachers. And that's why it's so important to talk about them openly and honestly with the people we love. So what have people been saying that their big regrets are? You said it's things they didn't do. What are some examples? I asked my mom, and she said... Uh -huh. um, I wish I had more kids and more real estate. I think that's a little bit of a joke, but not really. Um, well, um, and again, to curious. the point, those, those are things she didn't do. Didn't do, right. So what are some of the other things that you hear? Well, there's one of, the, one of the most common is people regretting that they didn't read out, reach out for help sooner. They didn't reach out for help with a mental illness, with an addiction, um, with a fear, with a phobia. 
so many people regret not getting help sooner. I myself, I, I've wrestled with an underlying anxiety disorder my entire life. I didn't get help for it till I was 58 years old and that helped change my life. It made my life so much better, but I waited 58 years to reach out and I regret that. So there are two kinds of mistakes that people make in life. There are mistakes of commission, the things we do, and there are mistakes of omission, the things we fail to do. And most people regret most the mistakes of omission. We generally find a way to get over things we've done. We ask for forgiveness. We grant forgiveness. Time heals. We, we, we forgive ourselves for our immaturity. But it's impossible to undo a lost opportunity, really. And, and that's what's so painful about it. I often say to people when they come to visit me and sit on, on the couch in my office, which I call the couch of tears, and they come to me to express regret. And the first thing, Maria, that I say to them to kind of triage the situation, get everybody heading in the right direction, the first thing I say is I look them in the eyes and I say, well, personally, I've given up all hope of a better past. And that immediately telegraphs to people, okay, these regrets are not really then about the past. Regrets are not about the past. Ideally, they're about a better future. And that's why it's so important to talk about these things, because it's a better future for us and for our loved ones who can learn from our mistakes of omission. Let's go back to the help thing, because you said that's that's a big regret you have. And having done this show for several years now, I talk with a lot of moms and on a different level, but similar, um, we're afraid to ask for help in areas with, oh, I need help with the kids. I need help with this. Yes. Why is it so difficult for us? I guess as humans, that's something we all share. It's not just us women or us moms. Why right. is it so hard to reach out and ask for help? Well, a lot of us were taught by our parents, our coaches, our teachers, that to ask for help is a sign of weakness. And it's quite the opposite, actually. The, the societies where people reach out for help the most, tribal societies where people share the burdens of life with each other, people are much happier. Uh, it takes great strength and humility to reach out. And we often are taught that that kind of humility is a, is a vulnerability and a weakness, but it's actually a strength. Uh, and I can only tell you that I often remind myself of this beautiful, beautiful story uh, in the Talmud, where the conclusion of the story, I won't walk you through the whole story, but the, the last line of the story is, the prisoner cannot free himself. The prisoner cannot free himself. When we are suffering, we have to reach out. And the beautiful thing about it, Maria, is that when we reach out very often, someone else is there to reach back and help lift us from our sorrow. And that is such an ennobling and beautiful experience for both parties. Yeah. So that, that's, that's the only way. We're always better for it in the end, asking for help. Um, I think before we go to break, we have time for one more of the questions, okay. of course, we'll get into more of them after the break, but one more of the questions that we would find in your book that we have to ask ourselves. What is love? Ooh. What is love? How do you define 
with words what is essentially impossible to define with words. What is love? And what we find as the common denominator to that question about what is love is counterintuitive. It all comes down to sacrifice. Now, most people believe we sacrifice for the people we love. And what I discovered is it's exactly the opposite. We love people because we sacrifice for them. I'll give you an example. Let me turn the tables for one second on the interviewer. Maria, what are the two things that mean the most to you in your life? Uh, I what are they? say family and friends. Okay, and what are the two things you have sacrificed the most for in your life? Them, family. And there's your answer. We tend to think of sacrifice in our society as a net loss, right? She made so many sacrifices. He paid the ultimate sacrifice. When in fact, sacrifice is a net gain. You do not become poorer by giving. You become richer by giving of yourself. In fact, if I can just get a little rabbi-ish on you for a second. The You're Hebrew entitled. Word, uh, thank you, you are a rabbi. The Hebrew, word, the Hebrew word for sacrifice, korban, comes from the family of words that also mean relative, to be close to, to gather in, to be near. We are closest to the things we sacrifice the most for. So love ultimately is about giving. I love this. All right, I'll let you guys out there ponder these deep questions while we take another break. More with Rabbi Steve Leader when we come back. Hey, if you like mom to mom and you're a fan of The Hub today, you've got to sign up for our new newsletter. It's called The Hubbub, and it is delivered directly to your inbox every Wednesday morning. We've got great mom to mom content on there, recipes, and all kinds of cool stuff. So all you have to do to sign up is go to NBCBoston.com newsletters and click on The Hubbub. I'm assuming you answered every question in your own book. Which yes. one was the most difficult or most profound for you? The last one, which is, you know, what would your final blessing be to your loved ones if you could speak at your own funeral? If you could stand up there and look out at them and say something, Ooh. what would it be? That, that was, um, I, I wouldn't say difficult because in the sense of not knowing what I want to relay, because I do know, and I did know what I wanted to relay. But just um, imagining that scenario um, is, is difficult for all of us, but I think it's so important because unless you really understand that you are going to die, it's impossible to fully live. Death is the great teacher of life. Death is not about death. Death is about life our lives, taking them seriously, enjoying them, being grateful for them, and, and sharing them with the people who matter most. So that was the, the, the most sobering, I guess, question, but it, it wasn't without joy, and, and it wasn't that difficult for me to answer. Wow. My best friend way, lost her mom I'm, when she was young. Um, mm -hmm. She was about 20 years old, and she always reminds me, we're not getting out of here alive. And yes. I feel like in so many ways, although she lost her mom, like you said, death is this great teacher where she is able to look at life in a way that we just can't. Right. Imagine if we were deathless creatures. Think about that and for a minute. And we just kept going on and on and yeah. on. What, 
what meaning would life have? None. Kafka was right. Kafka said the meaning of life is that it ends. And once you realize that, it changes your life forever for the better. For the better. Wow. We'd be living with reckless abandon. Or, or no ambition. Nobody would get married. Nobody would have children. Nobody would change anything. There would be no sense of urgency or agency, by the way. So, uh, you know, more is not better. Death, the fact that we are finite beings is what gives our lives meaning and value. Wow. Who would have thought this conversation about death would end up being so inspiring? I wish we had so much more time with you. Thank you so much for being here today. For more information on all of his books, you can head to Steve Leader. That's L-E-D-E-R dot com slash books. I really appreciate you. Thank you so much for being on the show. Give Thank so you. The, to honor. Think about. Uh, the honor was mine, Maria. Thank you.